Loving Father, we uh, thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that we can fellowship with each other and with you. And we pray that you be at work by your spirit, uh, showing us the truth of your word and changing us more and more, that we would grow in Christ, uh, that we'd be people that glorify you uh, with our words, uh, with our actions, with our very lives. And we pray that this would be good for your kingdom. We pray that this would be all to your glory and praise. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this is our third talk in our Just Start Talking series. Um, over the past two weeks, uh, we've been working through this course. So if you've turned up uh, this morning and you're up to talk three, remember there are other talks that go with this. It's not an exegetical study necessarily. It's a topical series uh, where we're learning about um, how, we, how we think about our place in the world as Christian people. So we've heard so far, so just a quick recap, we've heard that we're uh, what the Apostle Peter described as living stones. We're part of a spiritual house being built up in Christ Jesus. And we remember that we are the priesthood of all believers, uh, which, which uh, on one level means that we're all conduits of God's grace. We meditate his love, uh, we mediate rather his love and his mercy and we do that as members of his body, Christ's body, his church, the spiritual building which is joined together and we point people to Jesus. We show the world what Jesus is like. And then last week we looked at 1 Peter and we saw that showing the world what Jesus is like uh, means submitting to God but also submitting to one another and by always being ready to give an account for the faith that we have, but we do that with gentleness and respect. Uh, we have Christians made to glorify God. We do that by following in the steps of Jesus. And the hope, as we do this course together, the hope is that the world, that people, that the people of Inverell will see such tangible evidence in our lives in our words, that it will be magnetic and attractive. And that would open up the way for us to give an account for the hope that we have in Jesus. That we would just start talking about him. Uh, today's text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope you have it open. Uh, this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a sharp rebuke from the Apostle Paul to the early church in Corinth. And he's pretty much telling them, it's, it's a little bit brutal actually, he's, he's telling them to grow up. I, I don't know many of us that like to be told to grow up. But that is the context here. You can see it in verses 1 to 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Ouch. And he's got his cranky pants on, doesn't he? He calls them, what does he call them? Your infants in Christ. <laughs> All right, you bunch of babies. Verse two: I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not re- uh, uh, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Uh, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, "I follow Paul," and another, "I follow Apollos." You are just mere human beings. He definitely has his cranky pants on. And we might not like being told 
uh, to just grow up, like the early church, the Apostle Paul was, as he writes to the Corinth. But what's our vision for St. Augustine's? To grow in Christ. Uh, And so take that. Take that as an encouragement as we read this. Here is an invitation as we grow in Christ, an invitation to mature. And that is our goal. Uh, So uh, we persist. Verse 4. Uh, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Uh, I think Paul's saying, you sound like a bunch of five-year-olds. I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. I mean, that sounds babyish, doesn't it? Sounds like something for the kindergarten playground. Notice that Paul and Apollos, they're not bad guys. They're not ungodly men. They're, They're thumbs up guys. Top blokes of the time. Uh, holy men, if you like, yet other people made unholy and wicked divisions based on their preference for one over the other. They made... uh, Factionalism was based on personal loyalties to who they liked best, to particular ministers of the word, mere men. That's what Paul said. They're just human beings. And Paul is saying that is, when we do that, that is a sure sign of immaturity. You need to grow up. Uh, Question for us, straight away, it's not hard, is it? Straight away, I think the passage invites us to ask us where our allegiances lie. We know full well this isn't the church of Bishop Rick Lewis, is it? No. No. And Rick would say, no, it's not the church of Bishop Rick Lewis. It's not the church of, you know, those historical greats like John Calvin or Martin Luther, all of who are fine men. This isn't the church of Billy Graham or Joyce Meyer. This isn't the church of, uh, if you know, Rogue's Gallery in the parish hall. We know it, don't we? All those photos. All right, it's not the church of Canon Battersby or Ralphie Evans or Peter Grice or Adam Draycott. God forbid, thank goodness it's not. Okay, such divisions and distinctions and allegiances, the Apostle Paul is saying, it's ungodly. Any such distinctions are not of God at all. It's not of God at all. They're just just blokes serving the Lord. And can I say humans invent all sorts of ways to split and divide? We make the devil's work too easy when uh, the family of God doesn't get on. Um, I've known churches, there was one church that, that had a, a big split, a big fight. Headbutts were thrown on whether to carpet the church or to not carpet the church. I heard stories about churches that are split about the flavour, the type of coffee that's served at morning tea. They spent two hours at an AGM having a fight over whether it should be international roast or something else. Okay, really super important stuff. Uh, Maybe there was one church that split over um, uh, one one faction decided that controlled crying for babies was the only method to raise your child and another faction decided that they weren't willing to sign up and they split over that. Oh, we could split over anything, whether you think you can wave your hands in church or not or whether you, you could clap in church or not. Uh, traditionalist or not traditionalist it's very easy to split but the question Paul asks earlier in chapter 1 is, is very simple 
Is Christ divided? No, he's not divided. Paul asks it. It's a rhetorical question because we know the answer is no. Christ Jesus is not divided. That's why when we come to the table later, I'll be saying it's the Lord's table. It's not my table. It's his. And so if your trust is in Jesus, come to the table. Uh, was Paul, the Apostle Paul, did he, was he crucified for you? No. And when you were baptised, were you baptised into the name of uh, the Apostle Paul or Canon Battersby or Ralphie Boy Evans? Sorry, I shouldn't have said boy, that was disrespectful. Uh, Ralph Evans or Adam Drake or Peter Grice? None of us were baptised into those names. No, we're baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Into his name. And it is to him that we belong. And he's no mere man, though he was man. But he's the son of God. And he's our king. And he's our saviour. And so this church family belongs to Jesus Christ. Christians belong to Jesus Christ. We follow him and we belong to him. Here is where our unity and our belonging lies. We are unified in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. It is in him we, to whom we listen, to whom we obey. It is him that we seek to serve, I hope. You know, the book of Revelation says that he's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's it. He's it. And so there is no place for divisions. So verse 5, what then is Apollos? Who is Apollos? He's not Jesus. And who is Paul? Who is the Apostle Paul? Same point. Well, he's not Jesus. They're just servants, valued servants, yes. They're just blokes in God's service. Through whom the church in Corinth believed, yes. But it was the Lord who assigned each servant his task. Who are Apollos? Who is Paul? Humble servants that work God's paddock. So verse 5. There it is very plainly. What, after all, what <laughs> is Apollos? And what is Paul? Just servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Verse 6. Paul writes, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labour. For we are co-workers in God's servant service. You are God's field, God's building. So uh, what is Paul's task in his work? What's he doing? He's sowing, planting seed. You see the Apostle Paul casting out the seed. And what is Apollos doing? He's follow Can you see, use your imagination now, can you see another bloke following the Apostle Paul, watering the seed so the plant grows? And they're both on about the same thing. Where, uh, where Paul goes sowing the seed, Apollos comes after him. Watering. One plants, 
one waters, yeah, different jobs, both important, but both are about the same enterprise. Both are needed and neither can do without the other. One has to plant, otherwise the crop cannot begin. You've got to plant seed, otherwise there's no crop. And the waterer must water or the plants will die. Different roles, so there's diversity, but it's one operation. And maybe the analogy that the Apostle Paul writes here is that he wants us to think uh, that, that Paul sees people come to faith as he proclaims the gospel and shares the good news. He plants a seed, he plants the word, and Apollos comes along and nurtures people and disciples people and he trains people. And he instructs people and he helps people to grow in the word. And so both are important, but both are a bit different. But there is one thing that neither Paul nor Apollos can do. Verse 7, neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. And all the farmers said, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Ultimately, it's God's work and ultimately we are completely and utterly dependent on him for success. Yeah, we need planters. And yeah, we need those that do the watering. But the energy for the germination, the growth of the plant, it's bearing fruit and it's flowering. It all comes from God, ultimately. And it is in this sense that they are not anything. If God is not in it, it will come to naught. So that's the sense. The planting and the watering serve the single goal of facilitating something that only God can provide, and that is growth. And so if it starts and ends with God, there's no place for rivalry or competition or ranking amongst God's servants. In fact, if this is true, all this should do is promote unity and cooperation and solidarity as we all get on with the same thing as servants of the Lord. See, ministers can come and go, but God's work is God's work and it continues regardless. And lay leaders can come and go, but God's work is God's work and it continues regardless. And there's great comfort in that. Who is it that does the critical, life-changing work in our friends and in our family? Ultimately, it's God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, does that mean that we have no part to play? No, of course not. Somebody's still got to get on the tractor and sow the seeds and somebody still comes along with the irrigation and waters the paddock and those seeds that we need to sow are gospel seeds. We still need to be sowing, casting out the good news of Jesus. This news of forgiveness. This news of hope, of grace and mercy. And this news that there's more. There's eternal life. Now, if this is all true, now we've done the hard work in the text, I think. If this is all true, how does this encourage us as we seek to talk to our friends about Jesus? What encouragements are there? Um, a little while ago I heard about a, a bloke was talking about um, 
this thing called Back to Church Sunday. Are you familiar with the concept? You are. Okay, for those who aren't, it's, you know, it's this one Sunday that a church picks in the calendar where the church family decide, every single one of us, we're going to invite one person to church that Sunday. And everyone agrees, and uh, it's, 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 it's terrific. Uh, that demonstrates the importance of just extending the invitation and being welcoming as a church. And uh, one of the things that stood out to us was this. Uh, as I listened to this guy, he made it clear that we are not responsible for how people respond. And I know that sounds obvious now that we've been in 1 Corinthians, but it's like, oh, that's a relief. Uh, but we are responsible for the invitation. Oh, oh, okay. The success for this concept called Back to Church Sunday For them, it wasn't about percentages. It wasn't about the swell of numbers. It wasn't about an upward line on a chart. They measured success by this simple fact, and it was as easy as this. Success is one person inviting one person to church. Some of us might go, well, that's not good enough. Well, I go, you know, from okay, I'm going to take it if everybody did that. He spoke of one person who came to church. She was invited, so she came. And of all things, she didn't even realise that children were welcome in church. That was strange. He spoke of another lady who hadn't been to church for 25 years, and the day she came back that Sunday, she asked to be baptised. Turned out she was just waiting for an invite. Oh. On Back to Church Sunday, 20% of Australian churches participated by inviting their friends to church, which means how many didn't? Uh, 80% did it. So only 20% participated. And do we know how many people were invited in Australia that Sunday? 10,000 people were invited to church that Sunday. Well, it's better than none, so I'll take it. Well, I think the point is, you know, it's it's something to think about. It's still better than none. 10,000 is, you'd still take it. And internationally, 100,000 people accepted invitations to church. And since then, the movement, Back to Church Sunday movement, has continued to grow, and now uh, those numbers are greater. It does beg the question, though, what stops us inviting? Uh... Maybe what stops us inviting... I don't know if you think any of these thoughts. Let me try a few. Uh, Maybe maybe this is one. Uh, I suffer in church. I don't want my friends to suffer. (laughs) It uh, it might be. I'm happy to be open and honest about... Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Maybe you don't invite friends to church. Maybe maybe it's because... And this is no offence to anybody. It's not a commentary about... This, but I know it's dangerous when I say this, but maybe you're worried that they won't like the music or something. Or, or maybe maybe you're not inviting people because, you know, it could get inconvenient, especially if they ask me for a lift to church every week. That that would suddenly become inconvenient. Or they, no, I don't think I'll invite them to church because they might hear me sing. Or, or the minister, the minister. I'm actually worried about what will come out of his mouth. 
Maybe we don't invite people to church because we've forgotten why we come ourselves. And maybe, maybe, it's just a maybe, it's a habit, not a conviction. See, what stops us from talking about Jesus uh, in our conversations, let alone just the simple act of inviting people to church or a church event? I talked a bit about this yesterday, last week, right? Maybe it's the fear of rejection. Maybe people will think that we're just completely and utterly crazy. Uh, maybe it's the fear of starting a family argument. That fear is a true fear. Maybe it's the fear of not feeling equipped. And so because we're driven by fear and fear and fear and worry and our desperate need for acceptance, when we do get the opportunity and people do ask us for the reason that we have the hope, well, we don't have anything. We've got a whole lot of nothing. And we become dumbfounded. And we think it's all up to us, don't we? But the hard lesson of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the things it makes clear is, well, it's not all about us. It's not all about you. The plant will only grow if God is in it. See, even Jesus, did Jesus have success in his ministry? Yes. But did Jesus have failure? Did he experience the rejection of whole towns? Absolutely. And so if it rolls like that for Jesus, who did miracles and even then they wouldn't believe, well, what do you reckon? How is it going to roll for you? And so take heart. I offer that as an encouragement. I want to say that we do need to stop taking responsibility for what is God's department. Let God worry about what is God's and let him worry about their yes or no. That's his department. It doesn't all depend on us, which is a relief. But there is an encouragement for us to be on the tractor, to be out in the paddock, sowing the seed, sowing something, sowing the field, which means it doesn't literally mean go home and jump on the tractor, all right? It means get out there and share the gospel. And this is our bit. And like any crop... Do we provide the sun and the rain? No. No, God does that. That's up to him. And so ultimately we share in what is the Lord's work, and that is an encouragement. The incredible thing in all of this analogy is that we have a role to play. We have a role to play, a bit to do, but you know you're not responsible for the outcome. How good is that? You're not responsible And that to me sounds, well, it's a lot like farming, isn't it? But it also sounds a lot to me like grace. Where we are expected to do our bit, but we're not held responsible for how it rolls, necessarily. We're completely dependent on God. So look at verse 8. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour, we are co-workers in God's service. You are a co-worker with God. How good is that? You're God's field, God's building. And on he goes. When we see people come to faith, we reap our reward irrespective of how it rolls. And that is a great encouragement. The metaphor of working a paddock is not without its reward. It's not for nothing. It's never for nothing. 
For there are rewards to be reaped for what is essentially, ultimately, God's work anyway. Uh, This is not a pointless task to which we are called. Though, like any farmer, there will be times when we feel like it is pointless. This is a task we partner in with God, which means that we are never alone as we undertake that task. And we do it with God's enabling, enabled by the Spirit, and ultimately the promise is that we'll be rewarded. And so let me conclude with some quick questions. Have you been trying to think about creative ways where you can introduce Jesus into your daily conversations? Are you willing to jump on the tractor, plant some seeds, give it some water, watch it grow, to be about the Lord's work and to reap the rewards? For the news that we have to share is entirely and thoroughly good. We have a message that's not bad news. We have a message that we shouldn't be embarrassed about. We have a message that means forgiveness with God, forgiveness from God, and a right relationship with God that enables us then to go out and show that same love and forgiveness to others. As we live in right relationships with each other, the world will see that it works. They'll see how right relationships can and do exist because of the church family. So we do it as a priesthood. We stand between God and everyone else. We show them what Jesus is like. And the invitation then is to follow in his footsteps, to count the cost, to take the risk and reap the the rewards, for we have good news to share. Amen.